Ray Warren, welcome to the Wolf Den. Thank you, Richie. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Um, so we, we've been doing this podcast with big figures in, in racing and betting um, for about a year. And I, um, they've been going along nicely. And I chat with my brother a little bit. He, he watches them and I talk to him about ideas of what we could do for upcoming shows and whatnot. And he said to me one day, it'd be great if you could do a show on the Champions of the Turf. And I thought, oh, yeah, great idea. But how would we do it? in a way that it hasn't been done before and it hasn't and it's not a cliched way of doing it. And then one day I was going out for a run and I got my phone, I got a notification saying, Mark Burris, new podcast with Ray Warren. I thought, beautiful. I put it on and started listening to it. Great podcast. And straight away you took us back to the world of Ken Howard and when you're a young man and all these young horses. Yeah. And instantly I was like, Ray's the man. Rabs is the man to do this with. And so that set me on a path to try and get you in here. And we have got, got you in here. So thank you very much for coming along. First question would be, what do you think makes a champion racehorse in your opinion? Of course, it's subjective and everyone has their own ideas. But what do you think makes a champion racehorse? Oh, gee, that's a good question. You know, um, you could easily say the horse that wins the most races. Um, I, uh, you know, obviously talent. Yeah. Um, I, I keep thinking of my favourite horse, which was Tullock. Um, fastest mile and a half on turf ever yeah. in a Caulfield Cup. Okay, he wasn't carrying very much weight, but um, then he got very, very sick and he came back. So there's another word that comes into it, durability, uh, resilience, guts, determination. Yeah. Maccabi Diva, she rates very highly for me too as well, but uh, it's a very hard question to answer. <laughs> I once tried to ride a horse and I fell off the other side when they legged me up. So I'm no expert on horses, but I um, there was a time in my life where I just idolised the uh, the horse racing industry, and I still do. Yeah, uh, you got to understand that I I had no way of learning to do what I finished up doing because uh, I was in Juni, a little town, uh, 300 miles from Sydney, and. Um, there was no radio station. There were, there wasn't a gallops track there, um, and I was rolling marbles named as horses down a slope every afternoon after school from probably the age of eight until I was actually going to work. And by that stage, I was seventeen. So mm. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't raised in a stable. Put no, it that way, no. you know. Yeah. So you've always just been a fan, mostly. Absolutely, you yeah. know, and. Very much on the edge of it, you know. Yes. Uh, Mum would bring me to Sydney. Dad Dad didn't come on holidays. He, he didn't like uh, train travel, even though he was a fettler on the railway. Yeah. He laid the railway lines, but he was too scared. He wasn't too scared. He used to get sick if he went for a ride on the train. So Mum would bring me to Sydney and we'd stay at the People's Palace in Pitt Street. Yeah, not far from here. <laughs> a, a very communal uh, place to stay. Very low budget. Yeah. And she'd take me out sometimes to Canterbury or, or Randwick and let me watch the real thing. Yeah. You know. And so you had your first bet in the 1949 AJC Derby Playboy. Yeah. TJ Smith. Yeah. And in today's world, it's very easy to bet from home. Everyone's at home and you can put a bet on very easily. Now, what I found interesting is in 1949, you could also bet from home very easily. Can you explain how that, that happened? I can only tell you the story about mum and dad yeah. um, and, and they used to love a punt 
and we would only get the races on radio. You, you've got to understand I was born in 43, so I'm a child in the 40s and I'm still a child in the 50s. But uh, we had no access to racing other than via the radio, which was uh, as big as a, a refrigerator, yeah. massive thing. And it was on that radio that we'd listen to not only Ken Howard calling the horses once a week, but Alan McGilvray on the cricket, Norman May perhaps on the on the te- on, on the swimming or something like that. So it 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 was a long way from the actual heartbeat of the industry. Yeah. And uh, but was it big? Was racing huge back then? Was it was it the main sport in June? Uh, well, the crowds at the if you measured it on crowds at the track, yes, it was big. Yeah. You know, I mean, but the advent of uh, television in 1956. But more recently, the advent of television uh, in the pay variety, um, the crowds, of course, are are nothing nothing like they used to be, Mm. particularly out of carnival time. Mm. Um, But again, these are memories of a young bloke, eight years of age, growing up, and Mm. mum and dad are in the kitchen. Uh, We had a lounge room, but we didn't use it. But they're up in the kitchen listening to this man called Ken Howard, and the... SP Bookie, he'd come round on the, the morning of the races of a sad day and they'd write their bets out and they'd have sixpence on this and threepence on that and um, he'd go away and sure enough on Sunday morning he'd come back. If you want. Uh, with, uh, it, they always put their money in. Yep, cash in. Which is a good idea. Sure. Um, sure. And they'd come, he'd come back on Sunday and, you know, you'd won eight and threepence or... Yeah, something like that. Yeah, great, great but service. But they weren't convenient. hard to find and every pub, every yeah. pub had a, an SP bookmaker Yeah, and when they were going to be knocked off by the flying squad, that's what they were called, the, the police, they were called the flying squad, uh, the publican, he would know that they're coming, the flying squad, and the SP bookie, he'd be operating, but he, he had to have a stooge that would take the rap because if he got locked up, more than once, you started to run the risk of finish up being in a cell for the rest of your life, yeah, you know. Yeah. But it was rampant, yeah. uh, to be honest with you. And to boil it down for the younger people watching, you know, the, their major crime was the fact that they weren't paying tax. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's how easy it was to have a bet. But mum and dad had silver service. Mm. The bookie would come there Saturday morning, take the written out bets and, and come back Sunday and pay, hopefully. Oh. And before the 1949 AJC Derby, you were allowed to have a bit on Playboy, correct? Oh, yeah. And, and that, that was the start of it all. I mean, Dad, today, they probably would have locked him up for negligence, <laughs> you know. Um, but God love him. I had chicken pox and I was driving him mad. He was my babysitter slash nurse for the day. Mum had gone out to Coolerman to an auction sale to buy some galvanised iron for our leaking roof at our home in Juneau, but she handled that job better than Dad anyway. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, he he was getting driven mad by me because he couldn't listen to Ken Howard without me being aggravating, irritating with chicken pox. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I convinced him to let me have a bet on the horses, you know, and he said, you can have sixpence on something in the derby. <laughs> it's the next race up. And I, I'd, I'd been in the kitchen listening to races with them to the point that I knew the George Moore 
was the best jockey uh-huh. uh, or the most successful. I knew that Tommy Smith was a good trainer in the making. He was in yeah. the making, as a matter of fact, at that time. But anyway, I had sixpence on Tullick at 20 to 1 and I won 10 shillings. Playboys, sixpence on Playboy. Not Tullick, pl- Playboy, yeah. exactly right. And um, that's where it started. Yeah. Even- eventually Playboy became one of many horses that will be rolling down this slope in our, in our um, breezeway along with horses like Comic Court and, and Delta and Nave and Baron Boisea, San Domenico. Uh, <laughs> I can almost still see the colours of the, of the marbles. And did you know that TJ Smith had 500 pounds on Playboy at 101? No, you didn't no, know that? I, no, no, so, no. So he collected 50,000 pounds. I think that was a huge part of what got the... Well, you've done, your, you've done your homework. What, yeah. yeah, well, I had Rob Waterhouse in here and we were talking about Playboy in the 1940s yeah. and he said... TJ had 500 pounds on it, 100 to 1, collected 50,000 pounds. It's a lot 50, of 50,000 pounds in 1949 was a lot of money. Yeah, you're right, a lot of money. And yeah. I, I got to meet TJ and uh, have a champagne with him. Um, lovely man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I found him to be a lovely man, yeah. Mm. It's a pretty obvious question, but what do you think of Gay Waterhouse? And she's even, she's got Stormboy, which is in the press this week, you know, 20 to $50 million valuation. Obviously, you can be complimentary of Gay, but what do you think of her as an, as an Australian sporting icon? I think all I can see and hear with Gay is 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 positives. Uh, she's been wonderful for the industry, uh, and she's been wonderful for the community, um, and she's obviously very good with horses. Mm. Yeah, real horsewoman. So if we just go a little bit back to when Tullick was racing. So at the time when Tullick was at his peak, which you talk about, I reckon you were just starting working as a fitter and turner at the rail yards in June. Yeah. First question is, what is a fitter and turner? What do they do? It's a very good question. I don't know, really. <laughs> <laughs> I was an apprentice fitter and turner and I was supposed to work on the steam engine and keep it healthy. Um, there were probably two compartments, the fitter and turner. Uh, his job was to work on the, the cylinders and the pistons and all that sort of stuff, the, the pressure of the steam. I'm talking steam locomotive. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very hard for me to <laughs> to answer questions simply because you're from a different era yeah. than I am. Um, and then there were the boiler makers, and they looked after the boiler. So you put the you put the fire in the firebox, and you put the water around the the perimeter of the firebox, and that's all encased in asbestos, which right. we didn't know at the time yeah. was so dangerous. Uh, and we basically tried between us to keep the the, the steam engine healthy. Uh, you called it the rail yards. Uh, people at Junee would want me to correct you. It was called the locomotive roundhouse. Yeah. And it had 42 bays. Let's call them beds. Yeah. And they'd bring the steam engine in on the turntable and just like Thomas the tank engine, they'd, they'd, shovel, him, they'd shovel him off into a, a bay and then uh, he'd be invaded by uh, labourers, keeping him as clean as they need to, um, fitters and turners. And boilermakers, yeah. yeah. And how long did you last as an apprentice? I lasted, uh, I was going to say five minutes, but that would be smart uh, or being smart. Um, I was only doing that for a couple of years, yeah. Yeah. I didn't like it. No, I, I should have work. I should have worked. You've got to understand, though, that back in those days, if you lived, say, at Junee, um, if you didn't work on the railway or and you didn't snare one of the few jobs on the banks – then you came off the farm. Mm. 
and Dad was in the railways for 60 years and, you know, as far as he was concerned, uh, I was going to be on the railway and so was my brother and we were. He was a boilermaker and I was a fitter and turner, apprentice, Yeah. yeah. In 1980, I believe you were calling the Amcor Cup. The Winfield Cup hadn't quite started. Amco. Amco, I'm sorry. Amco yeah. Cup. Yeah. Um, I owe it to the Vincent family to correct you there. Yes. I think Amcor's a huge multinational company now that I'm getting confused. It's okay. Um, so you're calling the, the Amco Cup. Winfield Cup hadn't quite started. No. But at the time, you called three Melbourne Cups for yeah. Channel 10. And the interesting thing about those three Melbourne Cups is Kingston Town was supposed to be in all three of them, only actually ended up being in two but I want to talk about how you got to the point where you were calling Melbourne Cups and also let's talk about the king and where he sits in your list of horses that you've loved and admired. Well, I I got to call the Melbourne Cup uh, because of a friendship with the chief executive of 10 at the time, a man called Brian Morris. Um, uh, I used to play tennis with him and and Nuke and um, Ciappelli sometimes, Mike Willisey. So, uh, you know, I had... I had a lovely contact with Brian Morris and he knew I had this burning desire uh, to call a Melbourne Cup. Keep in mind I'd been with Ken Howard and John Tapp for about 11 years, Mm -hmm. not calling a lot of racing, um, but Brian knew that I harboured this dream and uh, he said, why don't you uh, call the Melbourne Cup for the audience in New South Wales and Queensland? He said... Melbourne want to do their own thing and I said, I understand that. So uh, here I am. Now I'm, I've got a Melbourne Cup in 1980. Beldale Ball wins the race. David, uh, Colin Hayes? Colin Hayes. He yeah. had two in the race, Beldale Ball and Bohemian Grove. Right. And I think Beldale had a red cap on to distinguish from Bohemian's predominantly white cap. Uh, John Letts yeah. uh, took off, led. They didn't catch him. Uh 81 was just a dash, Tommy another Smith. one for Lloyd Williams and Tommy. Um, and then Kingston was 82 for me. Mm. And uh, Malcolm rode him and everybody is bagging Malcolm to this day. But mm. with 60 kilos or whatever he had, Malcolm, who became a very friend, very good friend, I compared his wedding, um, Malcolm decided to get off the fence and, um, and get in the running line if he could. With the big with the big weight, and of course he left the he left the rails, and a bloke called Mick Dipman mm-hmm. <laughs> wearing blue and gold on Gurner's Lane for Jeff Murphy. He uh, basically occupied the space conveniently left by Malcolm. Mm. Uh, I remember Gurner's Lane because as I was studying the colours, I was thinking Gurner's Lane, Parramatta, Parramatta, blue and gold, blue and gold. Uh, I didn't need to rehearse Kingston Town's colours, but um, then of course in the in the shadows of uh, well, the last 100 metres or so, Mick, uh, Mick's going to drive home and and I think at the end of it I'd love to have cried because yeah. uh, we all wanted the champion to win. Yeah. ...for March the centre. The Kingston is coming at them and now Kingston Town's put his head in front. LA Bijou is coming from a long way back with my on Astro Lynn. Bianco Lady was checked and so was Silver Bounty. Kingston Town's in front. Port Carling's getting through with noble comment. And here's Gurners Lane driving through on the inside. The Kingston's in front, but Gurners Lane is going to him. Gurners Lane after Kingston Town. Gurners Lane goes home too well and beats Kingston Town. Noble comment ran third in the yeah. cup. Then- Why was Kingston Town a champion? 
because of all those words I described to you earlier. Yeah. You know, uh, he was resilient, he was durable, he was great, he was a champion and probably a legend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, we'll talk about Winks and He stuff was also later. attractive. Yeah, good-looking horse. Oh, well, he was a big black horse, yeah. 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 Um, and at the time, sort of you know, early, early 80s, even late 70s, there was a proliferation of two-up clubs and the illegal casinos all around mm. Sydney. I did a great podcast with Adam and Max Presnell about them and people love hearing about that time and what they were like. Did you ever frequent them or did you know much about them? Yeah, of course I did, yeah. Um, I've been a gambler all my life. Um, I'll never forget the, the late Gary Manning and I and he wouldn't mind me telling it even though sadly he passed away in the last 12 months. Um, we'd do the dogs. I, I, I had a checkered, uh, a checkered day. Uh, a laborious day before the casino. Um, <laughs> I, I'd go into 2GB and, and assist with the morning program and then I'd make my way to the track or to the football um, and then I'd make my way to Wentworth Park or Harold Park uh, calling dogs on television or doing the course call at Harold Park um, and it was... Only after we'd knocked off at 11 o'clock, say, mm. uh, we'd be driving along Victoria Road and we, we couldn't go past one there nearly on the corner of Darling Street. Uh, I remember a bloke there called Judder. Uh, and then I remember one night, I think, in Forbes Street, I, I, I was there and Purse was sitting up. Purse, he was sitting up in a big armchair. Purse Galea, yeah. Yeah, like, like he was King Charles III. <laughs> and... Uh, and then finally there was another one at Parramatta. I think I think my mate's name was Croc, something like that. Yeah. So don't think that I don't think that I was squandering money, but we, it was very enjoyable, you yeah. know. And I've got to say, you know, gambling I know is very dangerous, uh, but it's mainly dangerous when it's in the hands of a person uh, who who is is betting above their means, and somebody that's dependent on that person is suffering sure. as a result, that's, that's what we have to attack. Yep. Uh, the, the bloke that's betting within his means and having, having a ticket in Powerball or whatever, I, I, as long as he's not harming others, yeah, or himself, I've got no problem with gambling. You know? Yeah, and that's a super important thing of what we do here. Like we, you know, we really encourage people to gamble if it's you know, within their means and they're enjoying it. Yeah, but if, but you, we, saw a, if you saw a red flag... Opposite that person's name, I I would hope you'd straight away you'd do and we, something we, about it. They pop up it. all yeah. the time and yeah. straight away, and we try to get them yeah, as I much think, help as possible. I think but a lot, a lot, a lot of responsibility rests with the the bookie, mm. the corporate, or whatever we're talking about. You know, mm. if there's a red flag, mm. he or she they they owe it to the people to maybe say, "Hey, mm. what do you think? You know, can we have a conversation?" Absolutely, I'm very deep in the industry. I you know. I'm across a lot of aspects of it, in particular responsible gambling measures and mm. betting wagering has a bad rep reputation in the community at the moment and we're trying to work on that to get it better. But I can assure everyone that we have the world's best practice when it comes to responsible gambling and trying to minimise harm for the vun for vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. The community doesn't know that well enough. We need to educate them better. But the, the corporate bookies do everything they can to try and minimise okay. the problem. Okay, well, you're telling me that. I wouldn't know, but I would have thought if a bookie... Uh, if there's a red flag or, mm. you know, red light flashing, 
you should be doing something about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's outliers, of course, always. Small bookies might try and get away with mm. You're, gonna, you're the, probably going to start an argument guns. with the client, by the way. He or she's sure. going to say, you're kidding, yeah. aren't you? you yeah. Know. Let me keep going. I understand yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so still in the 80s, so you're working for Channel 10 and the 1984 Olympics come on. Yeah. And for the first time, you're, um, your fear of flying becomes a pretty big issue, I guess. So you didn't go to the 84 Olympics and yeah. two things. Was it because of your fear of flying and was it the biggest mistake of your career to not go? It was because of the fear of flying. Um, and one of the, the heads of Channel 10 had said to me, there are 32 sports and uh, you're going to need to know all about all of them. And if this mission or this exercise fails, it'll largely be on your shoulders. Yeah. And he was joking, uh, but you don't say that to, to me because I, I'm a very nervous people, um, even, even though it might not come across in, in my broadcasting. I, I stress out over a lot of things and I started stressing out having to know all there was about 32 sports. But I also was petrified of the thought of having to get on a, a plane again um, in 84 to go to Los Angeles. Keep in mind that back in the 70s, I covered kangaroo tours and World Cups and went to England and France uh, flying uh, and intrepidly. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was just horrific for me. You right, know. yeah. Uh, it's terrible hard, anxiety. It, yeah, people yeah. people that have got a phobia of spiders or whatever, mm. uh, the night, anything. I had a fear of flying. Mm. I can't deny that. And eventually we got to this stage in my life, uh, the middle 80s. I was talking about the middle 70s in relation to flying to England and France. But I decided uh, combined with the pressure that this, this fellow's off-the-cuff comment to me. Despite that, I was more concerned about the flying. So mm. I pulled the pin. Mm. And yes, it was the worst career decision one could make. Mm. And uh, it came back to uh, it came back to haunt me and pull my pants down uh, two years later. Mm. And it was also an incredible Olympiad, Carl Lewis and all those other incredible athletes. Yeah, well, did you um, watch it closely? I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was. I then I had to I had to back up whoever was there doing well. I had to back up. By being in the studios at Channel Ten at North Ride, yeah. So I was, I might as well have been in Los Angeles, yeah. yeah. Uh, and had I've got on a boat about two months earlier, I would have been. But yeah, it was a wonderful Olympics. I, yeah, yeah. So just quickly, forty years later, Paris twenty twenty four. Will you? How closely will you watch that? Now you're, you're just a fan like all of us. Do you love the Olympics and you watch it? Yeah, closely? I'm not going to tell you lies. I mean, there are some sports that I, are really. I'm sorry. Um, largely, I don't watch sport that I don't know the rules of. Yep. Uh, I was only talking this this subject to somebody the other day. I'd, I'd watch soccer if I knew the rules mm -hmm. better than I do. Um, but yeah, I, I'll be watching the Olympics, um, particularly the swimming. Yes, uh, there were two decades in my life that swimming came into my life, and I, I never expected it. Yeah, I never, you know, I couldn't dog paddle. And suddenly they wanted me to call the swimming uh, through the misfortune of Norman May, really. Uh -huh. um, but that's another story. And what happened to Norman? Oh, well, Norman and I first got together at the Com Games in Auckland in 1990. Mm. And he, as a child, had an accident and lost an eye. 
um, I think it was the old keyhole story. Mm. And the good eye it was, was fading. And Channel 9 asked me, would I do the swimming at the, at the Commonwealth Games in Auckland? And I, I said, yeah, sure, but I don't know anything about swimming. They said, you won't need to. The bloke with you doing colour, yeah. uh, he knows everything. And, and he did. Yeah. Norman May, he, he had it all in his head. Right, so he... I, I, I actually filled three research books um, with info on every swimmer. And he had it all in his head. Yeah. And so did you fall in love with swimming over that period? I think I did, yeah. 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 I I came through a, a beautiful era though. It was I mean, the I mean, era. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. You know, it'd be like coming through an era where you've got Tullock and Kingston Town and Winks and Black Caviar. Yeah. And, and and I was on the back end or the, or the front end of Kieran Perkins, uh, the 1,500-metre a swimmer that was attracting attention at the time was Glenn Houseman, yep. um, who I still maintain was the first Australian male to break 15 minutes for the 1500, but the, the clock at the pool in Adelaide didn't work. Uh, so poor old Glenn, he, it's, it's, it, he was the first Australian to go under 15 minutes. The only time anybody had been there before was a Russian called Selnikov. Yeah. But... I came through with uh, those sort of people. Lisa Curry was there. Susie O'Neill was there. And then the next time was the Com Games two years later where Nine put uh, the, the swimming to air live and it rated its backside yeah. off. So then Nine signed up to take the swimming. So we did – I finished up in – this is the bike that was scared of flying. Yeah. This is the bike that pulled out of L.A. Yeah. and nearly stuffed his career. Yeah. Now I've got, I've got Hong Kong and I've got Yokohama, I've got Fukuoka, I've got to get to Barcelona, now I've got to get to Montreal. Yeah. And, and people, when I talk about the fear of flying, they say, you're kidding, aren't you, you know. And anyway. did, you, did you get to know Thorpey well? Because out of all the swimmers, and we've got so many brilliant ones, he probably was the, the biggest and the best and the most famous. But the thing about him is he did it at such a young age. I mean, you were yeah. calling him as one of the great athletes Australia's ever seen and the bloke was 15 or 16. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. I, 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 again, I didn't it, – it, you asked me a question ages ago about Tommy Smith, but no, I, I was never close to them. Mm. Um, keep in mind I'm 80 now mm. and I could have been their great-great-grandfather. So it was unlikely that I was going to become close friends with Ian Thorpe. I became close friends with his father, Ken, and mm-hmm. his mother, Margaret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I became close friends with the Roonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I understand. But to get close to the swimmers, uh, no, I didn't. But there was, uh, there was Thorpe and Hackett, you know, and... That was one of the, the races I enjoyed calling most, I think. It was a, an 800 in Hobart and uh, it was the first time Thorpe had stepped up to a, a distance race beyond 400 and they went eye for eye, you know, mm. eyeballing each other and Hackett, I'm sure, was thinking under his breath, I've been doing this for a long time, boy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll learn something here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Down to the 700-metre turn. Hackett leading by 0.11 of a second. Has Thorpe got plenty in the tank? 
He hasn't been this far. Thorpe might be just in front. In fact, Thorpe has gone about a oh, half a body length in front. He's gone for the accelerator. He's put the foot down. Thorpe in front. And look at the record. It is 0.16 outside of now. Haggard is hanging in there. He's 0.22 behind him. Thorpe goes down to approach the 750 metre wall now. And Hacker's not going away. Thorpe, he might have gone a little bit early. He's looking a little bit thrashy out in front. He's looking back at Grant Hackett. Grant Hackett swimming along very, very nicely. But the Torpedo's got a body length on him. He must work this turn if he's going to break the world record. Good one. Now Thorpe. Here he comes. He's on his way back. 7.15.55. He led by 1.02. Let's start the clock again. Look for 7.46. Doug Foster standing up. He's cheering for his boy. Ian Thorpe is really blowing Hackett away now. He's three in front of him. He's coming down with two strokes to go. There's the world record. There's the world record. He has absolutely annihilated the world figure. 7.41.59. There is no stopping Ian Thorpe. This is a legend. This is the greatest, I think, of all time. And what he does at the back half of his swings is quite phenomenal. And at that time as well, Kathy Freeman, she won the 2000 yeah. Olympics. Where were you when that happened? Oh, gee, uh, probably sitting in my lounge room. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you weren't lucky enough to be out of the track or anything like that. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Um, again... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've become a bit of a couch potato, mm. really. Mm. Uh, traffic, parking, can't really have a drink. The blue lights are going to get you on the way home. Sure. And here it is, live and free yeah. on Channel 9. Crystal or, clear as well. Or Channel 7 or whichever network's got the damn thing. But mm. no, you know, I, I think you see more on television, really, you do. Mm. So you've spoken about really, really happy times. Let's go back to not-so-happy times. So... 1986, the Winfield Cup's in full flight. You're calling for Channel 10 and Rex Mossop is parachuted into your role and you're kind of pushed out into rugby league wilderness. Is that a fair yeah. appraisal? It's it's very fair and it takes me back to pulling out of the LA Games. I left myself vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and I can't blame them, Channel 10. They they obviously realised they needed a new sports head um, and he was rating very strongly in the news area of Channel 7, uh, let alone what he was doing with the rugby league itself. He was a, he was a great commentator mm-hmm. um, and he was a much bigger personality than, than I ever was mm-hmm. um, and he polarised, mm-hmm. uh, he, he dominated, he was domineering, uh, he was colourful mm-hmm. but he... he he was a wonderful old footballer and there was only one opinion and it was Rex's opinion. And he actually did, did co-commentary with me on radio at one stage. So I never I never hated the man. I hated what happened to me mm-hmm. but I never hated him. And I probably, I probably have to tell you that at the time I hated Channel 10. Thanks for watching for 21 years. 13 of them in Sydney. Channel 10's rugby league coverage continues through October, November with the Kangaroo Tour. It'll be covered by Alan Catt as your director. David Fordham and Rex Mossop, your commentators. I leave you um, low on regrets. 
but high on disappointment. From the SCG, goodbye. But no, I've come to realise what they did, they basically had to do. Mm-hmm. And the story ended great for me because a few years down the track I was going to go to where I always wanted to go. As a, as a kid, I dreamt of working for Wide World of Sport mm. Yeah, with, with some of my heroes, you yeah. know. Um, but during that time, rugby league exploded. You had the Tina Turner promotions. It was some of the greatest grand finals ever. Mm. And did you – I heard you in an interview say that you can't really remember when Fatty won the premiership and things like that because you just weren't really watching and taking part. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, Richie. I, uh, I was bitter and yeah. I was upset and I, if you like, I divorced myself from the game there yeah. for a, a 87, 88, 89 90, 91, um, people might think that sounds strange, but, you know, I, I was – it was hurting to watch it. You yeah. Know, not, nothing to do with commentary. It was hurting hurting me to watch it because they'd taken, they'd taken my, my toy. Mm. <laughs> they'd taken it off me. Mm. And it took me a long time to realise that what I did in 84 uh, probably put me where I was and where I deserved to be. Mm. 1992 Channel 9 gets the rights to rugby league. I presume Kerry Packer went hard and got them. Did you have a sense that rugby league was really ascending and that, you know, the whole Tina Turner thing arguably made it the biggest sport in Australia? Were you aware of that um, as it was happening? She had a huge impact and, and it was something league needed to do. There's no question about that. Um, John Quayle didn't get the recognition that he should have got, um, but he took the gamble. Um, and she boosted the game. Um, I don't think the game got any better because no. of Tina, but I, I just think that Simply the Best uh, was a great campaign and it helped the game yeah. very much so. Um, but no, I, I, don't get me wrong, I was... I, I might have... I might have said earlier I was, I was bitter about it. Yeah, I was. But for the game to flourish, uh, was that was no fault of what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was happy for the game. Mm. And then in 91, the phone rang in the November and it was Ian Frickberg from Channel 9. He said, how would you like to call Rugby League again? I said, oh, I'd love to. Mm. He said, how long do you need to think about it? I said, about five seconds. He said, I'll call you tomorrow. We'll talk about co-commentators. And he said, we've got the rugby league from next year. Oh, mate, I was jumping for joy. Yeah. You know. And did you – could you not have anticipated back then how big your career in rugby league would get? You know, you essentially called for 30 years after that. Did you ever think that you'd get to the heights that you did at that time or did you think you are mm. just going to be another run-of-the-mill commentator who hopefully would call one season and maybe go on after that? Yeah, I, I, I don't – quite know how to answer that except to say to you that I, you know, when when I did the Amco Cup, which became the Tooth Cup, which became the KB Cup, which became the National Panasonic Cup, mm-hmm. uh, when I was doing that, I, I'd pinch myself on the way home from Leichhardt every Wednesday night, you know, and I can't believe what I'm doing, you know. Mm. And um, I thought, well, I've reached my crescendo. Mm. Uh, but then it all started back again in 92 and it sort of went through the roof. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of some of the awards uh, that people have honoured me with and 
and then it got to the end uh, and I I thought to myself I don't I don't want to undo mm. whatever good I might have done I don't want to undo it so I'm going to I'm going to pull the pin quietly mm. I didn't tell anybody that that was going to be my last game in 21 mm. uh, so yeah look I I, I Without sounding egotistical, I can't really answer your yeah, question. Of yeah, no, that's fair enough. So let's talk about doing the form. And you do the form in two ways. You do the form when you want to have a bet. Talk about that in a second. But what about doing the form for when you're commentating? I presume there's a lot of preparation that goes into calling a state of origin and whatnot. How, how, how long would you prepare to call a state of origin? Oh, I'd be I'd be thinking about origin sort of a couple of weeks before Um Grabbing, grabbing little pieces out of either the newspapers or stuff that uh, David Middleton might might send me, uh, building a little story about every player if I needed it to fill at some stage. Yep. Uh, some people tend to uh, uh, talk about things uh, while there's exciting things happening on the field. Yeah. So you've got to be careful you don't over-research, but origin – not a lot of hours until the last couple of days and then I'd, I'd have my head down for eight hours uh, for a couple of days pr- prior to the match. Keep in mind you knew the players pretty so much, yeah. you know. I, yeah. I, I'm, I probably I'm joking a little bit but anybody can call origin really. Mm. Mm. If it's only recognition and identification, mm. uh, any student of the game could, could call origin, uh, putting excitement into it or whatever. That's another another horse with a different story. And your famous call, that's not a try, that's a miracle. Had yeah. you did that just come into your head at the, yeah. at the moment? You hadn't thought beforehand, oh that's not a bad no, thing. No, I'll no. try and use that one day. No, mate, I I, I I I don't think I've ever taken a note into the game. Uh, I might have written down something that was uh, pertaining to the, the period of time for the kickoff. Yeah. You know. Um but but that just came along with most of the other things I've said. You know, it's spontaneous. You know, stop him. Somebody stop him. He'll run out of the stadium. <laughs> I never, I never went to the, I never went to work thinking I'd say that. Yeah. You know, and then Talus, look at Talus. He's ragdolling this. I, I'd hardly ever heard of a ragdoll. You yeah. know, and then, and then this ball came across the park through eleven sets of hands that went back, and then coin. Coin, that's not a try. It's a miracle, you know. And the screaming in the background is the Queenslander with the red hair. Yeah, you know. the fat man. Yeah. Victory or snatch a draw. Coin at the 79th minute is tackled. Trailing 12-10. Langer pushing it wide. Walters onward. Khan joins in. Floats the pass for Renoff. Renoff down the touchline. Beats one. Gets it in field. Hancock gets it on. Queenslander coming back. Darren Smith for Langer. Langer gets it away. Here's the big fella. Gets the pass on. Coin. Coin goes for the corner and gets the try. Queensland. It's a miracle. Oh yeah. What about that one? Stello. Unbelievable. What about that from Queensland? They can't believe it. Unbridled joy on the sideline, and why not? That's not a try, that's a miracle. Oh, Queensland are in front now, and the- 14 to 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, everyone sort of lost control of their job as being commentators, and it was just sort of pure 
adulation and excitement. Wasn't I don't it? mind it. You know, I hear people. We used to get accused a lot of being uh, biased to New South Wales, uh, and I tried desperately to to be fair on both both sides. Mm-hmm. But I, I I didn't have any problem with Vorton, yeah. uh, Fatty cheering in the background for Queensland. What's wrong with that? And yeah. Wally, the same, ditto. Billy Slater, uh, Jonathan Thurston, Darren Lockyer. And then, of course, you got Sturlow. It was obvious he was a little bit of a New South Welshman, as it was Brad Fittler, Andrew Johns, Phil Gould. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I talked about Rex earlier. Rex, he thought there was only one team playing in the... In the football, <laughs> manly, you know, and, and, and God love him. Yeah. God love him for doing that. Yeah. Did you get nervous before calling Origins? I get nervous uh, doing anything, really. Yeah. I, I get nervous coming in here to talk to you. Um, I get nervous before any match or guest speaking, anything like that. My wife's got the say, she said, please. Don't do it anymore, you know, because she's she's trying to live with me, and and God love her, she 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 puts up with a lot, you know. Because mm. don't get me wrong, it's I'm not throwing things at her and all that sort of stuff, but um, yeah, I I get nervous, I get stressed out, mm. but the moment they hit the button, yeah, uh, right. I I seem to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And in the Origin Cauldron, um, so many incredible athletes have played, but. You think Wally Lewis stands above all as the best? Oh, I'm on record as saying that. Yeah. Um, I do think it's unfair, though, to compare players of different eras. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've also been on record suggesting Billy Slater is probably the best fullback I've seen. But then I think about, is that fair to Churchill? Sure. Uh, everything's changed. The diet's changed. The science has changed. The grounds have changed, the football's changed, the preparation's changed. Uh, even, you know, Billy Slater, I can think of Graham Langlands. Mm. I can think of Graham Eady. Uh, it's unfair to compare people from different eras, but you asked me the question, uh, you didn't, but somebody has, um, and I think Lewis gets the nod mm. because he dominated Origin mm. with eight Man of the Match awards over a decade. Mm. And and it hurts me in one way to say that because I'm good friends with Andrew as well, mm. uh, as I am with Wally. Yeah, mm. there's that famous scene where Wally takes up to Mark Geyer and you oh, know yeah. just he's yeah I think that we had Gordon Tallis in here and he did a podcast and he sort of cited the fact that not only was Wally a brilliant player but he was a real leader of men and yeah he didn't matter who it was if you're on his team and someone like big bad Mark Guy comes out you he would be in there you know so. Yeah, that that you, you're you're spot on. The funny part about it, I I look at Wally now, and he looked to me like he was much bigger on the field, yeah, in his gear, yeah, than standing there in a suit talking to. He's me very mild mannered now. I'm sort he? of looking at him in the in the yeah. eye, and, and <laughs> when he was out there trying to breast up there with Mark Geyer, I thought he was a much bigger man, yeah, than he is. Yeah. Um, but he, he's a good fellow, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, who was the referee trying to part them? Was it? Was, was Great it, question. Was it, was it Ma- Manson? Was it Manson? Yeah, it wasn't Harrigan, was it? No, 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 no. No, I, yeah. no I've, I've got a feeling. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. So you weren't calling that because it was 1991, wasn't it? And you wouldn't have been calling it. It was at the no, Sydney I, Football Stadium. I think I was. You were calling it? Oh, yeah, where, where you're getting confused. 
I got invited by Daryl Eastlake mm-hmm. to come on board when Ian Maurice left. He left nine mm. to go to ten. And Daryl said, I'm now without a, a wingman. Why don't you come on board? It was 1989 mm-hmm. right. that I started doing Origin. Okay. And uh, Because maybe Channel 9 had the rights to Origin but not the Winfield. Nine had that. the rights, yeah. Originally yeah. I think seven, seven and ten might have had a year of it. Yeah. But then nine, Kerry jumped in and, and grabbed it. Maybe when it became a series yes. uh, in 82, I'm not quite sure. And you never knew Kerry, did you? You didn't have much to do with him? Not much. Uh, if he came on campus, uh, if he came around the canteen, I'd, I'd make myself scarce because yeah. <laughs> I'd build up this image of this gruff, um, this, this man that, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't frightened to tell you what he thought, you know, and, and I just thought, well, I'm better off staying out of the road here, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the wild world of sports. It was so I was you look around in the late eighties and it, obviously it's still going now, but I was I remember being ten years old, nineteen eighty nine, and it was I you know, I loved it so much watching the wild world of sports. I don't know, it was every Saturday or Sunday. Saturday or, afternoon, yeah. Saturday afternoon was it and I had those fantastic stories. Yeah, and, they used to cross out to the track and and Ken yeah. bring Ken would bring us up to date with um, Sunshine Shoe and uh, Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And uh and Ken, Ken was calling, or John, um, and there was Cipelli and Mike Gibson and Ken Sutcliffe and Max Walker. I remember all the people you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah brilliant times. So let's move into the 2000s. Um, Maccabi Diva, uh, she was a brilliant horse, three Melbourne Cups. What are your memories of her? Well, they're not, they're not vivid, but mm. I, I think I answered this question earlier. Um, answering another of your questions. Um, she is a legend. Yes. And I don't think I don't think Maccabi Diva gets the recognition she should. I understand we we idolize and God knows what winks and yeah. and we we do the same with black caviar, but my God, what she did was incredible. And one of the things that I don't think don't think people stop to realise a lot of horses win the Melbourne Cup because they've beaten the handicapper. Yeah. I don't want to go too deep into that, but there's a lot of horses prepare for a Melbourne Cup running in wait-for-age races for which they can't get repenalised. Mm. And on the other occasions they might go around, uh, they're getting ready. They're putting kilometres in their legs. So they're dodging a re-handicap. Mm. They're very happy they've got 50 kilos. Mm. Maccabi Diva, the handicapper, had three chances to get together mm. and the handicapper failed three times. Miserably because she shit in all three times. Exactly right. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. 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 She won three Melbourne Cups yeah. and she beat the other contestants but she also was able to do the right thing and still beat the, beat the handicapper. Yeah. There's two brilliant quotes after she won her third Melbourne Cup. First one was Greg Miles saying, a champion becomes a legend. Do you mm. remember hearing that thinking? Because the less words, the better, you know, if you can... No, that's right. He nailed it. Yeah. I, 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 thought, I thought it was another race, but uh, it was a wonderful comment for Greg to mm. make. Now, as they come down the straight, was Vinnie Rowe, and back behind them, here's McIvey Diva. A nation roars for a hero. She's starting to wind up. 300 left to go now. McIvey Diva's 
racing up. Envoy's trying to go with it. They've got to Portland Singer and Lachlan River. Here comes like a Falcon and excellent. But McCarty Diva clear with 100 metres to go. Excellent runs to second. Olajun runs on. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Diva has won it. Maccabi, I don't think she is is rated as high as she should. Sure. She won a Cox Plate too, didn't she? And yeah, Bossy rode her so beautifully in the Melbourne Cups. Yeah. Terrible ride in the Cox Plate. She went twenty-five wide. Still, she. I can still see that charge of the Light Brigade yeah, coming down, footage, coming down footage. the school side, is yeah. it, of Mooney Valley? Yeah. yeah, it was a wonderful sight. But my God, I mean, you're talking about Kingston Town. What about him? Yeah, Cox yeah. Plate. He won three two, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Kingston Town can't win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bill, God love him. And the other great quote was Lee Friedman. After he was being interviewed, after she'd won a third Melbourne Cup, and he said, "Go and find the youngest person you can in the whole of Flemington Racecourse. Maybe they're a chance to see this get repeated again in their lifetime. But anyone who's old that will never see a horse win three Melbourne Cups." No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Um, we'll think big tried, brain lover tried. Yeah, yeah. Um, so early two thousands, you missed out on a golden era of rugby league, as we spoke about late eighties, early nineties. But it had another golden era in the early 2000s. The footy show was pumping with Fatty and Sterlow and all that kind of stuff. Um, we had some amazing players, Freddie Fittler, Gordon Tallis, you know, so many great players. And you were right to think of it. And also that, you know, you and your commentary team became a huge part of Australian culture and still is, but not as much. But back in those early 2000s, you know, you guys were it. Um, I was, you know, a young man or a teenager and we all looked up to you and, and whatnot. Is that how you remember it? No, not quite. No, yeah. not quite. Uh, when you when you're in the situation I am, I'm I'm basically just again playing with my toys. Mm. You know, um, sitting between some of those names, you you rattled off co-commentators. Um, to me, that was part of the dream come true. Mm. Um, I never imagined I'd even ever get to meet many of them. Uh, let alone work with them. Um, and, yeah, I understand what you're trying to say, mm. you know. Uh, personally, people were imitating Rabs. Um, they still are. <laughs> and uh, I used to hate it, you know. Originally I hated it, you know. Do I sound like that? Uh, but then I got used to it and I had to because Billy Birmingham made uh, some of the members of the commentary team, he made an album. Yeah. Uh, and he, he used us as, a, as the base of it. Yeah. And I, I caught plenty, you know, yeah. uh, particularly trying to pronounce the New Zealand names, the Polynesian names. Uh, <laughs> so Billy dined out on me um, and I started then to actually laugh. Mm. And then I'd have people ring up and say, can you judge these people? You know, and they, they'd come on and look at Talos, look at Talos. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty good. Five out of ten, you know. So, yeah, I was enjoying it eventually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good times. So let's talk about Winks. So I've argued with Adam quite a bit about where I think Winks is. This is Adam Sparrow. Adam Sparrow sitting over there. The, the, son, the son of Jack. Son, son of Jack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so Winks for mine is the best horse of all time. I even have a better than Farlat um, because she, you know, she went through that run of wins where she just didn't get beat. Um, that's just my opinion. We don't even need to talk about it. But what did you – what are your memories of Winks and, and, and watching her – Oh well, I was stunned by the uh, the credentials she was building. Um, 
I think the closest I'd come to uh, seeing it happen in that proportion, firstly there was black caviar just mm. before Winks. Mm. But then I go back into my days in harness racing and I, I think a horse called Lucky Creed won a, a stack full of races back-to-back. Uh, -to -back. Yeah, but you see, again, we come back to how old we are. Mm. Um, somebody, somebody reminded me the other day, the thing that's freshest in your memory is the one that will become the most indelible. Mm. For that, for that particular person. Yeah, a recent and I can't get Tullock out of my head, Yeah. right? Yeah. So you can sit there and argue with me about winks or we yeah. can debate, yeah. uh, but we're going to become bad friends. <laughs> but Tullock, for instance, Tullock, he came back from death yeah. and he finished up in a match race with a horse called Lord that um, he's my champion, yeah. Tullock. Tullock, yeah. Um, and... Um, just leave it at that. Absolutely. What about best jockey you've seen? Oh, well, again, again, here we go again. Here we go again. Remember I was riding the broomstick around the kitchen table? George Moore. George Moore. I thought I was George yeah. Moore. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I can't back that up with any evidence. You know, I, I think it's a little bit of a fallacy. We seem to think, oh, he's the leading jockey in Sydney because he's ridden the most winners. Mm. Uh, it's more likely that he, he had more opportunities and was riding for the major stable or stables. Mm. And I'm not having a shot at any individual, but if you go back through time, you know, when Kevin Langby was with uh, Tullock Lodge, he was the premier jockey. Mm. Same with Malcolm. Darren, Darren was riding for Jack and Bob. Mm. Um, they win the premiership. Mm. So I've got more admiration for blokes that don't get as much opportunity. Uh, you take a bloke like Josh Parr. And if you do your figures, which somebody did year, a year ago, mm. per, per dollar or per ride, the ratio thing, mm. he, was the, he was the one you, you wanted to be on, Josh Parr. Mm. Uh, but has anybody ever said he's the best jockey in Australia? No, no. It, it's, it's not an aggravating argument, but it, it, it's a debate I finish yeah, up in a lot of times, time. you know. Yeah. What about other athletes out, out in the big wide world outside of racing and rugby league? Is there any athletes that have really inspired you over the years and you'd love to watch? Oh, well, I, I touched on swimming so mm. I'll, and I'll stay on swimming. I, I had the, the honour uh, and the thrill of calling Michael Phelps. Mm. You know, um, he was just an incredible creature mm. in the pool um, and to do what he did. I, I never, I never thought I'd ever see anything in the proportion of of Thorpe or or, or Hackett or even Perkins. Mm. But then there he is, the American, and he he he's rewritten record books right across. Certainly, uh, in in a career that he, mind you, he had he had going for him the fact that he could he was equally proficient at all the strokes. Yeah. Uh, he might have faded a bit on breaststroke, but he's a wonderful swimmer. Mm. And so you're a storyteller. You've been a storyteller all your life. I'm an aspiring storyteller. There'd be lots and lots of other Australians out there who are aspiring to have storytelling careers like you. What's your advice to me and everybody else um, to be a, to keep improving their craft of storytelling? Well, I, I'd, I'd tell you to always be honest. 
even though I've told friends of mine a million times uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, manipulating the truth to get a laugh. Sure. That's okay. But I would say to you, remain honest at all times. Um, don't burn bridges because yeah. you might want to walk across them on the way home. Uh, they're just things that have rushed off my mind. I mean, I, I didn't come prepared for it really. Yeah, yeah, sure. And last question, why as a nation do you think that we love sports so much and we love being fans? Uh, I, I, I don't know that I can answer that without asking for time. Um, but, but, but sport's good for everybody. You know, it, it brings us together. It's character building. Um, it's relaxation for some. It's torture for others. But it, it's like a common denominator even though they might play Australian rules there and not over there. and it, It's still a common denominator. Yeah. Um, and we need uh, to be united. Uh, we need to be brought together by something. And if, if sport can, can provide that common denominator, then it's doing its job. Yeah. yeah. So it's Saturday morning. Um, what does the rest of the day look like for Rabs? Will all be out in the den betting? What were you going to have a bet in your in your happy place, wherever that is? Yeah, I'll I'll just get in my car and I'll drive home and 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 I'll sit there and watch the TV and um, have a punt on your own. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I hate being disturbed. Yeah, yeah. And is this in your little office at your home? Is that where you? Have yeah, to... yeah, yeah. Well, it, it used to be a lounge room, but now it's an office come museum. Yeah, yeah. But I I'm you know. I'd like to think I'm pretty much just your ordinary guy. Yeah, you know? I think you are. Yeah, yeah I, I still go to the club of an afternoon, have a drink with a few blokes, debate with a few blokes, tell a few gags, tell a couple of lies in amongst <laughs> the gags. But uh, I, I, I hope that's who I am, you yeah. know. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Really appreciate no, it. No, my pleasure. Thank Good you. Good luck on the punt today. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richie. Lovely.